The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We're dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and scrum.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and in today's episode, you'll hear me speaking with Laura Ray Turner. She is an accredited coach, trainer, and facilitator who works with leaders and teams to develop an agile mindset, behaviors, and the skills to thrive through change. Before becoming a coach, Laura delivered enterprise software projects as a project and program manager, technology consultant, and software developer. She is the founder and managing director of Future Focus Coaching. In this episode, you'll hear Laura and I explore all things related to systemic coaching, the six lenses of systemic coaching, and how we as Agilists can bring systems thinking and an overall systemic view into the ways that we work with people, teams, and organizations. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Laura. Hello, Leslie. Thank you for joining me for an episode of the series today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. I'm so happy to be here with you today and have this conversation. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Before we ground our listeners in a little bit of your background, I just kind of want to unzip a little bit about the very end of our conversation that we had as we were preparing to record today. I asked you the question, um, you know, what kind of aura or feeling do we want to bring in to our discussion? And you talked about like mountains and open spaces and fresh air. What about that sort of metaphor and that environment do you think is important for setting the context for how we're going to explore systemic coaching and this idea of becoming agile today? Oh, what an interesting question. Well, um, I've always had uh, a real um, keen sense for the natural environment and a respect for nature. And um, I met my husband in a mountaineering club. So we're both keen on kayaking, hiking, climbing, cycling. Uh, For a time, we even tried tennis. But um, it's the mountains and and, uh, the, the sea and the rivers that really turn us on. Um, and I suppose it's, it's this sense of, um, you know, wanting to tune into something that's much greater than me that I really care about, which also informs my coaching. Um, and so I know we talked a little bit about my book and the scaffolding that I chose to frame the coaching approaches for my book. And it's a systemic approach. So I don't think that was an accident um, because yeah. it's very close to my values and beliefs and, and how I like to be in the world. So thank yeah. you for asking about that. You're welcome. And I, I think you're spot on there because I think that it's a great primer for everybody as they're getting ready to listen to us talk today of, you know, we are part of a whole. Even as a single human being, we are systemic in our own nature and the multifaceted aspects of us as even an individual and how we link together um, for others in relationship and organizational relationships and, and global relationships. It's a, it's a really interesting backdrop for everybody just to think about how they fit into the big picture as mm. we get into this today. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, 
let's standard opening question for all of the guests, yeah. right? Um, like, tell us kind of your Agile story. Oftentimes I hear from people that Agile found them versus they found Agile, but I'm not sure exactly what your Agile path exactly was. So tell us a little bit about that origin story. Yeah, um, thank you for asking about that. Um, I mean, I started as a software developer in the 1990s when looking back on it, Scrum was uh, just a, a an idea in Jeff Sutherland's mind, and I had no idea what Scrum was at the time. I, in fact, I think I started as a software developer the same year he presented the first paper on Scrum. Um, but I, I worked as a software developer and a technology consultant, project manager, program manager uh, for the last, well, for 20 years up to 2014. And for a lot of that, you know, I wouldn't say that I was I was doing agile, but but in hindsight, I was being agile. I, I just I just didn't know it, and uh, agile as a brand wasn't a thing for quite a long time during my career in technology. Um, but I remember uh, one day realizing I had to go on a Scrum course um, because working as a contractor, uh, you know, you have to keep up your own certifications and 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 uh, knowledge and skills. I remember going on this course and, and uh, you know, being a, a project manager, I, I think I, I wore a nice blazer and I, you know, tried to look professional for the thing. And someone on the course turned to me and said, you know, you look like them, but you sound like us. Mm. Um, meaning uh, the way you speak about how important uh, collaboration is and people and openness is very agile. Um, so I suppose that was the epiphany on my my first Scrum course as a delegate. Uh, I realized that um, you know that this was for me. Um, yeah. I, at the time, I couldn't have foreseen that I would be changing career tracks and leaving my very well paid and very stressful job as a program manager and going into training and coaching. Um, but it was one of those things, Leslie, where one day I realized. It's not the job, it's me. I don't want to be doing this anymore. And mm. my husband, who I would hope knows me better than most people, said to me, I see you as a teacher or a trainer or coach or something like that. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but uh, anyway, I listened to him and that started my journey as a trainer and a coach. And, and what a great decision it was. That's great. And it, it's the um, it's interesting how you know, those moments in our career was like, oh, the thing I'm doing and, and what I make up about it is, is like this thing I'm doing, I've suddenly realized it's not aligned with actually my higher calling and mission in life and the, the freedom that comes with that sort of realization, but also the scariness of it um, in making those kind of changes. Is there anything about that shift that might be useful for you to share with us? Because I really, as I think about our listeners, right, as they have those sort of awakening moments where it's like, ooh, I need to make this change. Hearing how other people navigated those shifts is often fantastic advice and mentorship. Mm, wow, what a good question. Um, well, you say scary, and I suppose making a big change like that is a little bit scary, but there's something that's even stronger than the fear. It's the, um, the space and the freedom and the excitement of knowing exactly what you want to do 
Um, and the fear is more excitement and opportunity than um, terror or panic, mm. <laughs> I would say. So um, for anybody, um, including coaches who I work with, who who start to experience that freedom and openness and, and the lift, the buoyancy of knowing that you're doing the right thing for your work and life, it's an incredible feeling and you don't want to let go of it. You just want to keep doing more and more and more of it. Um, so this is where the woman I was working with this morning um, in coaching said to me, this is the first time I've wanted to work until 11 o'clock at night. In fact, I didn't even realize it was 11 o'clock at night. Um, and she realized all of a sudden that, um, you know, she's been struggling with some health issues, but that actually um, the problem wasn't always a physical problem. It was the work. It was the work itself. Yeah. And now that she's chosen to do different work, she, she feels really buoyant. Um, and that's how I felt. Um, less stress or well, a different kind of stress, I suppose. But um, I really dug in when I moved into training and I wasn't great at it in the beginning. I just really dug in and I was lucky that I had support from colleagues and just kept, kept bashing away at it until I got good at it. That's great. I love the, the use the word buoyant. Mm -hmm. That's such a wonderful evocative word. Like mm -hmm. how, how, how might we feel buoyant in our lives and in our work? Um, so thank you for offering that as sort of a, a, a thing to contemplate. I, I, I love also that your background is in the technical aspects of, of having been an engineer and a developer and there in the early days of Scrum, because you're going to have a really unique perspective on how you have not only navigated your career through the emergence of Agile, but also observed the role of women in the global Agile community as it's grown and begin to flourish. So what commentary can you offer us for that? Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's really topical. Um, the number of times I, I do a course on, you know, Agile project management or one of, one of the various flavors um, of agile development. And somebody says to me, why were there no women at the meeting in Utah in 2001? Um, and, you know, I have a group this week, uh, we're, we met Monday, Tuesday, and, and then again, tomorrow, Thursday, and, uh, it's all women and they're not, um, from it. They want to learn agile project management and they, they are in healthcare. And they said to me, where are all the women? Mm. You know, where are all the women? And the best answer I could come up with was technology has been male dominated for a long time. And in 2001, that was probably pretty representative of the number of women in, in technology. I mean, there, there were some, there was me. Um, you know, and there's, there are some really well-known women who've made big contributions to our, our field, like Mary Poppendieck, who's just mm -hmm. amazing. If I could have one mentor in life, it would be her. Um, but I, I really want to know what to do about that, Leslie. I'm going to be volunteering soon for a charity here in the UK called Ignite Hubs, which is about getting... Um, girls and non-white boys and girls into technology jobs by teaching them how to code. And it's um, a project that was started by a woman who just does it using any space that she can get 
after school um, teaching all kinds of kids how to code. And that's the best way I've figured out so far to help rebalance this. Um, and yeah. more and more, we need to have diversity in technology because we're going to have people writing the algorithms and the AIs of the future that automate loads and loads of stuff for us. So we need yeah. to have different people writing code. Um, so that's that's the, the best solution I've managed to come up with so far. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's it's such a great opportunity and I'll, I'll seize it to really remind people of the mission and why Women in Agile is here, right? To create a sense of global community, to know that those of us that are you know, women or, right, I guess I'll call it non-male to some extent, right? Because it's not, we don't want it to just be about women, but it's how do we bring about that greater diversity? And for those of us that are already part of this community, we're not alone. And how do we make these connections? Because, right, I guarantee there's a listener here that's going to hear what you just said, Laura, and be like, ooh, I can go do something like that too. Because there's that balance of, how we as women in Agile serve each other while we are here in this moment and what we do to come together as a global community to pay it forward so that the generations after us have the privilege of having barriers torn down and greater opportunity and everything. So I love that you have that giving back angle um, to your thoughts there. Thank you. Thank you. I learned it from Lisa Adkins, who um, probably gets 100 requests a week to speak at things. Um, and, uh, you know, must must be a great problem to have. Um, but you know, she certainly, you know, earns earns that uh, that place as, you know, a spokesperson um, through her hard work. But uh, when I reached out to her for an interview for my book, uh, she came back and said, yes, because I want to pay it forward, because I want to support great women. And boy, was that humbling and a very interesting conversation. Um, so interesting that I, when I had it transcribed, it ended up in the book almost word for word. So, um, yeah, I'm grateful to her because she said this to me. She said, I really want to support great women and, and help br bring them with me. Yeah. So, wow. I have the chills actually thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do too. I do too. And it's, it is, it is the why we are here. It is why this podcast series exists. And, and really your reference to Lisa there, that would, that is what path or paved the pathway for us connecting for this conversation. Um, and so you get, you've given me a perfect segue. So you've got this new book, Becoming Agile. What was your inspiration for writing it and how did you bring it to the world? Oh man. How much time do you have? You know, <laughs> writing a book and getting it published is not an agile process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a few years ago. I was doing some CPD. I joined a workshop. And, and CPD uh, is? Sorry, Continuing Professional Development. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and and I, was, I was in a workshop with some, some great uh, coaches um, at Julia Vaughn Smith and Jenny Rogers, who put on a workshop about understanding trauma and how to detect and work with it um, as much as we can as coaches um, with our clients. And um, what an interesting workshop that was. But this wasn't an agile community event. In fact, it was was people who knew nothing about the word or what it meant. Um, and so 
I just happened to be talking to one of the, the workshop delegates over a coffee and she said, you do what? And your dissertation for your master's degree was on what? Wow. She said, I work for Open University Press and I'd like to talk to you about writing a book for us. And Leslie, it was like the the time and place wasn't what you would expect, you know, uh, in terms of an opportunity to come a, you know, to write a book about becoming agile, but there it was. And so, of course, I nodded and said, yes, 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 let's speak about it. Um, that was over two years ago. And um, so the book is published by Open University Press, which is really exciting because the um, coaching psychology book series has some incredible authors. And just to be alongside um, some of these people like Carol Pemberton and, and Julia Von Smith, um, who's also an Open University Press author, is, is also incredibly humbling. I like to think that I had some things to say um, because they were very happy with the manuscript that I submitted uh, the first time without asking for any changes, actually which is incredible in itself. And um, so the book brings together professional coaching approaches with some of the well-known approaches that we know from the agile world in order to create a comprehensive picture of how to work with leaders and teams and stakeholders to really create sustainable change in organizations. And when I say sustainable, I mean long lasting Mm -hmm. where we really um, are, are working with people at, at different levels as opposed to just consulting with them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I felt that was really important because we've been seeing people trying hard to apply scaling frameworks and put in new, quote unquote, best practices, um, which, of course, are best practice for one organization, but not for all of them. And so... I, I just thought there was a better way to attack this. Um, yeah, and I'm quite proud of the book. I'm quite proud of the result. And you should be. Thank you. Should you should be. Yeah, yeah. The um, you you've you've you're bringing forward a lot of ideas that I want us to figure out how to unpack. And before we get into that, the um, I just want to give a couple definitions. I think most people and most of our listeners, especially because of the Coaching Agile Teams mini series we did over 12 episodes with Lisa Adkins um, earlier this year, really talk a lot about professional coaching and how professional coaching influences the Agile industry as a whole and kind of that stance of Agile Coach. Um, so I don't want to necessarily define professional coaching, but I do want to define sort of systemic coaching and how that is sort of part of of professional coaching and what that what that really means so we can ground people in a little bit of the foundation. Yeah, sure. Uh, writing a book is interesting because you're writing everything down um, in, in a permanent way and it forces you to go back and uh, reconfirm everything you thought you knew. So um, that was a moment during the writing of the book where I said to myself, do I really know what systems thinking is? And um, there are a lot of branches of system, systems thinking. Um, so it, it doesn't really mean one thing. Um, in terms of coaching, for me, systemic coaching really refers to working with holes and using approaches from systems thinking in order to um, examine situations that are messy, um, that need to be addressed by groups 
um, mm-hmm. in order to do the work um, that 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 needs to be done to create change. Yeah. Um, so I really embraced systemic team coaching, which was created by uh, a top leadership coach here in the UK named Peter Hawkins, together with the Academy of Executive Coaching. And um, it's a relational approach uh, that really asks coaches to think about all the stakeholders in a system, which is usually an organization. But there are also stakeholders like customers and other people impacted by businesses that are often ignored. Um, but I, I just um, I like the way he um, asks coaches to uh, to consider people on an individual level, an interpersonal level, um, team relationships and team tasks, whether the team purpose is clearly articulated. Um, the systemic uh, context um, in terms of the macro environment, you know, for example, the political, economic, social, environmental, and legal aspects uh, of the macro environment, but also other stakeholders in an organization that um, sit around the team and can help a team be successful or not in producing great products and services. So, I really took that approach and embraced it because for me, it was easy to understand. And if it's easy to understand, then it's easy to use with my clients. And I use that really as scaffolding for two thirds of my book, Um, really as a a gentle reminder of, of, um, uh, of where to put our attention as coaches. Yeah. I think when there's so, something, sorry, go ahead. As I say, there's something so relevant about this because listening to you talk, it's like you're describing all of the, the complexity of the dynamics that we as agilists have to live in every single day. So if we're truly going to be applying professional coaching in the agile context, looking to systemic ways of working and thinking would seem sort of like common sense. In, in some ways, but I think it's also, it's a big leap to be prepared and be capable of doing this kind of work. Um, so so I, is, it, is the way you broke this down into six different lenses around systemic team coaching, is that part of what helps people really get their, their mind around what it means to coach and, and think and operate in these ways? Well, I think there are lots of tools that come from systems thinking that are relevant. I think there are ways of being and recognizing uh, your influence on um, the people you're working with um, just by being there. Um, There are lots of different ways of looking at this. Um, But, uh, you know, today, uh, I think we're talking about the six lenses of systemic team coaching, which is one model in the entire approach. Um, if we had more time, uh, <laughs> and I prepared <laughs> slides <laughs> for your listeners, um, I think, you know, I, I could do a seminar. In fact, get in touch with me. Uh, if that's <laughs> no, I'm absolutely joking. Um, you know, I want to be sure that, uh, you know, that I've articulated something as well that your listeners are going to find useful. And so, um, you know, ask me another question. Uh, wh- where do you think they, they'd like me to go with this? Yeah, well, I, th- I think there's so many ways. I, you know, I just, you know, in, in, in prep for us today, ideas and models that are around something like six lenses, like, okay, I can take this really big body of work and start to orient myself to it 
through these different dimensions, or you use the words lenses, I think is a great way of introducing people to a new topic and shifting our ways of thinking. And so we can start getting curious in different ways. So I think spending some time there, I think would be really great. And then maybe like, wow, how do I actually learn about this more can be where we go next. So, so you've got six of them, individual, interpersonal, team dynamics, team tasks, purpose, and objectives, stakeholder interfaces, and then just the wider systemic context. How did you derive these six? Why are they important? And maybe like, what are two of the areas that people might look to first if they really want to start orienting themselves to it? Yeah, the six lenses uh, were defined by Peter Hawkins with the okay. Academy of Executive Coaching. So I don't take any um, credit for that. But um, when I was learning um, systemic team coaching, uh, what helped to bring it to life for me was a short case study um, that was an example that helped to bring it to life. And I was reading this and I was also um, thinking about um, Gene Kim's book, uh, you know, that brings to life DevOps. And I mm -hmm. thought, oh, you know, I need to um, write a case study that brings this to life in an agile context. Um, because so many professional coaches ask me, what is agile all about? And the agile coaches ask me about my experience as a professional coach and, and how that, you know, helps to, to make agile teams more successful. So I started to frame everything that I thought was relevant um, in, in agile coaching, really good agile coaching in terms of these six lenses, um, and thought back to um, a, a, a client engagement where um, I was observing and working with people in the organization um, and, and viewing the, the people and their relationships in different ways in order to help them move forward. Um, so what I did really was I thought about some of the most important coaching approaches that I use with people one-to-one. -one. Um, so in terms of the individual lens, um, there's things like helping leaders with critical thinking skills and resilience, which is super important for people working in fast changing, uncertain environments, which are the ones where you would use an agile framework, um, managing stress, and really important, I thought, was including the idea of not knowing, the mm. acceptance of not having all the answers and sometimes yes. not knowing and not being sure. Um, and so I, I kind of filled up that lens from an agile perspective with these approaches, which I thought were all relevant um, when working with people one-to-one. -one. And um, when thinking about the second lens, the interpersonal lens, um, I mean, I thought about it uh, in terms of the relationships, the interpersonal relationships and things like the impact on team members when uh, project managers and other leaders have a facilitative style or servant leadership as opposed to command and control and very directive. Um, also, I, I, towards the end of my writing of the book, I realized that remote working was going to need to be addressed um, because this was during the pandemic. And so I addressed that a little bit and there's a terrific interview with Judy Reese um, and a case study um, about her and her work in the book. Um, and also a little bit about face-to-face -face communication. 
And I, um, I did a lot of um, research and reading while I was doing my MSc in coaching a few years ago. An on, MSc? Yeah, a uh, master's degree. Okay, just yeah. global listeners want to make sure we're catching all the acronyms. So thank you for letting me get you there. Yep. Yeah, no worries. Um, yep. In coaching, uh, which I did at, at Henley Business School here in the United Kingdom. And, um, you know, while I was doing my research there for my dissertation, um, I did a kind of a mini literature review on face-to-face communication because I wanted to understand what the psychology literature said about um, whether or not face-to-face communication was really important. So I also addressed that in the book. Um, And then, you know, Lens 3, really some of the kind of classic agile tools there about how to identify purpose and create focus and commitment. And I'm thinking about the Scrum values now. Yeah, um, team dynamics. Yeah, team dynamics can be such a tricky place for us when we look to working with agile teams in this act of coaching. So you were thinking you said you mentioned scrum values and some other things. Like can how do you even just define what the boundaries of what team dynamics is? Because it can almost be a bottomless pit in my mind. Well, I think I'd want to understand the context a little bit more to to answer that that question. Um, but to me, there's a, a quality of um, the, the type of communication that they're able to have. Um, are they listening in order to confirm or disconfirm what they already mm-hmm. know? Um, this is what Otto Sharmer calls downloading in theory you, which um, it's something I'm, I'm using these days in my coaching. Um, or are they um, listening in order to um, g- generate new ideas and create dialogue? Um, and to me, you know, that's something that I look for all the time in groups is what's the quality of their attention to each other, the quality of listening, how they communicate uh, and show respect. And are they able to create dialogue and build new ideas or is it just um, like tennis? Um, yeah. you know, I think about just lobbing a ball back and forth and seeing how hard you can hit it. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's lots of different places that we can go with that, with team dynamics. Um, but for sure, we need teams that are able to perform extremely well. And that means dialogue and not mm-hmm. every team has it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's such that I, I love that definition of team dynamics and the way that you phrase like it, it's the characteristics of how they're being together and the communication and the way they're listening I think in, in how to watch for and how to listen for how a team is listening um, is so interesting. I want to sit here for, for just a minute. Um, when you think about this lens of team dynamics and coaching from a systemic perspective, if you're a scrum master on a team, right? So you are part of the team itself. How are you navigating that application of systemic coaching when you're within the system itself? Well, that's interesting. And I'd have to um, think about that a little bit. Um, I, I mean, I suppose, I suppose I, I would want to understand the context a little bit more. I mean, uh, there are interesting questions that you have. Um, but I mean, uh, are you thinking about a particular problem or issue that, that you or a colleague has, has had or? Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking about one of the classic conundrums of, um, 
ethics and professional coaching, right? In this, you know, the belief that exists out there, at least by some, that you shouldn't be coaching a system that you're part of. And so in a scrum master, and if a scrum master is employing professional coaching skills and using a coaching stance, they are inherently part of the system that they're working with. And so when I think about team dynamics and the way that communication happens and the listening, like that to me is where this potential conflict emerges the most when you are applying coaching skills when you're on the thing that is being coached. And so I was just curious what your thoughts were there. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure it's necessarily an ethical one in an agile environment because because agile coaching, of course, has four stances, the professional Mm -hmm. coaching, facilitation, teaching and mentoring. Um, And it's impossible um, to be truly um, independent, you know, of of the team um, because Mm -hmm. you're you're in the working environment. So you hold some beliefs about um, what's good and bad um, just through your commitment to work there and 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 do the job. But um, uh, I, I think that lots of leaders and scrum masters are examples of leaders or they should be. Um, use coaching skills day to day in their in their job mm-hmm. without having to have the label of coach, without necessarily giving it a label or calling your meeting with somebody a coaching session. Uh, there is a coaching style of leadership that lots and lots of leaders use to be effective with people to help uh, their direct reports think for themselves which um, doesn't need to be called out. It doesn't need to be called professional coaching. And it, it doesn't, you know, we don't need to make a meal out of it, which is a mm. great phrase uh, that we use here in the United Kingdom. Um, so I don't know that it always necessarily needs to be an issue. I think it's it's a style of leadership that I wish I would see more, actually. I hope that's given me a lot to think about. So I thank you for sharing that. And I realized that was a little bit of a tangent from, from where we were on team dynamics, but it just, I, I started wondering about that when you were sharing about that lens. Yeah, um, I think so, um, you might have been wanting to go into confidentiality if a, a person acting as a coach is, is working with people one-to-one, how do you, how do you keep their, their content um, confidential and then continue to be useful to, to the entire team of which that individual was a member. I, I suspect that that's where you might have been wanting to go. Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. Or just conflicts of interest in general, when my agenda for us as a team, as a scrum master, might be at odds with someone else's agenda for what we might need to be doing as a team. And just there's there's complexity there in my mind. And it also feels probably like a whole separate episode <laughs> we could record. It'd actually be a really interesting panel discussion with, yeah, uh, with a group of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's three more lenses, right? Team tasks, purpose and objectives, stakeholder interfaces, wider systemic context. Give us a little bit more knowledge on those before we wrap up today. Yeah. My favorite of the lenses, um, if 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 that makes any sense, are really lenses five and six, the stakeholder mm. interfaces and the wider systemic context. We really need to be building networks 
um, through our organizations and outside our organizations in order to stay fresh and build skills and be relevant and bring new ideas into the organization. And so the stakeholder interfaces and wider systemic context are super important, I think, for any organization to be successful. Um, in stakeholder interfaces, I include things like customer focus, cross-silo leadership, how to be effective um, working across these these funny silos that our organizations decide uh, make people more productive. Um, and also on the wider systemic context, so many people in organizations are so busy delivering and firefighting every day and managing email that we lose sight of kind of what's going on in the world and more importantly, how to spot trends, systemic trends. Um, I have found ways over the years to be um, informed enough about trends going on in the world and, and what I perhaps need to be better informed about by um, subscribing to some great newsletters. My favorite at the moment um, and for a long time is the World Economic Forum's Friday newsletter, uh, which could have articles about COVID-19 and global response to that. It could have articles about AI, blockchain and climate um, and all sorts of things that eventually will come knocking on my door as a small business owner and for sure will come knocking on the door of the uh, medium and, and large enterprises that, that I work with in my coaching. So, um, you know, that's massively important. And to, to get on the front foot and to actually sense and respond to change that's coming in the future and not just adapt to something that's hit us in the side, we need to tune into those global macro trends in technology, politics, you know, the economy, society, and to start to um, understand and have techniques for workshopping and identifying uh, possible futures for our organization um, and, yeah. and how we can get on the front foot. Yeah, you um, you offered us buoyancy sort of as, a, as a, um, a thing to think about early on and this idea of being on the front foot. I love that sort of metaphor as well. Um, because that is a very, like, just even I'm sitting in my chair as we're recording today. We can see each other, but our listeners are only getting the audio. I like the way I was even sort of sitting when you said that. I was like, oh, there is a proactive nature to that idea of front versus the reactive. Um, that would be a really fun retrospective to actually do with the team. Like, like, do we feel more on our front foot or are we kind of, you know, put back on our heels and, and where are we on that spectrum would be a really just fun place to spend time exploring team dynamics and stuff. Yeah. Even creating their yeah. own metaphors for what mm -hmm. the past and the future look like. Uh, that yeah. to me is the really exciting stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The way you can embody it when there are your own metaphors um, is, is so much more powerful. The, um, and I like that you kind of offer us your your favorite being uh, those last two uh, of the lenses. What, for your own personal journey, being prepared to be the person that brings this book into the world, um, as, as we wrap up today, what, what was one of the pivotal moments for you in terms of unlocking a new way of thinking or transforming the way you orient to this work? What was one of those really salient moments for you? I want to be sure I understand um, 
what you're asking me about about how I got through the writing of the book, basically. Not not as much the writing of the book, but mm-hmm. like um, the the your exploration and deepening of proficiency in this work, like your personal journey in doing this work that happens to be captured in a book, but your own journey. What was one of those kind of pivotal or important transformational transformative moments that you had? Yeah. Um... I, I hope this doesn't sound overly trite or simplistic to your listeners, but I had a real feeling of terror um, mm. when I signed the contract to write the book, um, when I started to explore the content and the themes and and what I, I felt I had to say. Um, I couldn't believe it was me writing it. Um, and then once I got into it, I had so much content and so many things to say that I had to pull it back. Um, but there was this feeling of terror most of the way through the writing of the book. And you know, I mentioned the book is a COVID baby, so it wasn't terror from anxiety from the pandemic. <laughs> it was about understanding my own capabilities and pushing myself out to do more than... I ever expected from myself in the past, um, and the when I when I felt that I realized that lots of people feel that all the time, this terror of um, having to perform and perform beyond what we ever thought was possible for ourselves all the time, um, and it, it's one of these things as a coach. Once you experience it yourself and you felt it, uh, and you can identify it, then you can identify it in other people, and I think that it will make me a better um, executive coach, better leadership coach going forward, having having pushed myself beyond what I thought I could do. Yeah, because we're uncovering better ways ourselves and using that to help other people do it too. Oh yeah, there's, there's yeah. a good phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Borrowing a little bit from the manifesto. Um, okay, what, one other thing, actually there's two quick questions before we get into our real wrap up. Um, so maybe a little rapid fire um, here on these because I don't want to keep listeners listening too, too long. Early on, um, you talked about when you're talking about the individual lens um, from systemic team coaching, you talked about growing people's capability to have comfort in their not knowing. That gets to be a tricky place when I think about um, agile coaching specifically. And oftentimes agile coaches are looked to to be the smartest person in the room and often are asked to tell us how to do agile well to not actually coach us on our own journey of becoming agile. So this tension between the content authority and the expertise versus the real embodiment of a coaching stance, what guidance do you have for people that are living in that, that, that tension? Oh man, you're full of good questions today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I uh, was fortunate to be in a supervision group with a bunch of very experienced coaches um, last year. And of course the topic of um, giving advice came up um, and uh, one of the very, very bright coaches um, in, in, in the supervision group um, of which I was a member said, you know, when asked to give advice, just don't do it. Just mm. say no. And um, this, of course, is, um, you know, as a professional coach and we're being asked to um, 
support an organization in transforming and transforming culture and behaviors and habits, that is the realm of professional coaching, make no mistake. You know, so it's not a teaching job. It's not a mentoring job. It's not facilitation. Um, we are not doing people any favors by going for the easy response, by giving people what they want to hear and, um, and looking good. We really are not. I think that smart leaders, smart organizations who really want to do the work to transform understand when we answer a question with a question. As long as it's a good question and it causes people to think and we stay present to pay attention to the answer and they know we're listening. I for me that's my that's my get out. And I think it's the right it's the right approach. It's not just sneaking out of having to give advice. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, asking great questions to generate better thinking um, instead of giving answers, uh, I think is the way forward for me. Yeah. And that is a topic in and of itself on how to do that and how to become comfortable with that. That is for many of us, a lifelong journey <laughs> Very much. Um, for, for people. So, so thank you, Laura, for that um, perspective for people that are wondering how to do that better or how to really get started on their own systemic team coaching journey. Um, or it, I'm a student of um, CRR Global and the Organization Relationship Systems Coaching, right? often referred to as ORSC. That is not the only way to learn about team and system coaching, though. What are some of the other resources and coaching schools and other places people might turn if they want to get started on their own paths in this area? Oh, wow. I'd say pick an approach that feels right, that you can get excited about, um, whether it's branded systemic or something else. Um, I recently got turned on to something called Theory U, which, which was created by Otto Scharmer at MIT. And um, you know, find something and, and practice it. Practice it a lot. Practice it with people who are smarter than you. Practice it with people who have more coaching experience than you. I went through a 10-week program to learn Theory U from some very, very smart women and then put my hand up enthusiastically when the facilitator said, who would like to be part of a practice group going forward? So I'm enthusiastically doing that and learning a lot from people. So it's continuous practice. We call it CPD because it has to be continuous professional mm -hmm. development. Um, and I think being a good coach is, is all about continuous practice and continually discovering um, our own intelligence, our own body's intelligence for giving us clues as to when we're in service to uh, people around us and when we're not. Um, there's, there's a feeling, there's an intuition, there's a, a twitch or, or something in your shoulders or neck that tells you I'm treading into you know, hot water, or I'm doing a great job for people. Um, and so um, something I'm learning is to use the body's intelligence as a way to tap into groups and all kinds of systems um, to, to be of service to them. Um, but, but whatever you choose, pick it and keep practicing it and learn from really smart people around you and don't ever stop. 
I love that. That's such a great calling. And it sounds like you're already kind of planting the seeds. One of my standard wrap-up questions is always like, what are you doing for your own professional growth now? What are you geeking out on? It, it, you've mentioned Theory U a couple times. Is it Theory U? Is it something else? Like what, what's your place of intellectual stimulation these days? Yeah, I like anything that's holistic that also um, reminds me of the unseen stakeholders, uh, the ones that aren't paying the bill, the ones that aren't the customers or shareholders, um, underserved people, invisible people, um, the planet and the ecology and the plants and animals and, and all of the living beings that, that create a balanced system that uh, allows us to thrive. Um, and for me, Theory U does that um, with a, a real awareness of um, the ecology, um, social issues, and, and also spiritual issues. And mm. uh, Otto Scharmer really uh, has done a tremendous job at bringing together lots of disciplines to, to create an approach that's holistic from systems thinking, um, even design thinking in there, uh, so prototyping a, a possible future. Uh, which really, uh, as an agileist, resonates with me. There's mindfulness. Um, there's physical movement. Um, there's there's drawing and all kinds of different forms of expression, um, which which are exciting for me um, and create lots of opportunities for for working with clients in different ways. Um, yeah, and all the. Holistic. Yeah, all those different ways of engaging modalities, if you will, right? I love the neuroscience behind that and how engaging through all those different ways opens up new ways for the brain to work. Um, yeah, and so it taps into wisdom in different ways. So yeah. I, I love the science that's backing all of that too. Yeah, I do too. Um, the neuroscience is really exciting um, because it's giving us evidence for things that we could only intuit and then test and test again um, for a long time. And that's exciting to have um, empirical evidence of, of some of the things that we know to be true about working with people. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, um, that's, that's nice. Um, what I'm realizing is that uh, we already have that intelligence and without having to put the science around it, um, we can use our bodies to create that intelligence and, and tap into uh, feelings and notions about uh, where to go with clients, um, you know, to create a better future. So, so there's, there's something somatic and uh, very gestalt about that, about um, sensing what, what's coming next and working with whatever comes uh, without a, an agenda for for a coaching session, for a client's engagement, et cetera. Yeah. Laura, there's so much good stuff in this conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest with me today. Well, I'm worried, Leslie, that I've probably um, overwhelmed all of your listeners, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's always a hundred things swirling around in my head that I'm interested yeah. in. So yeah. um, if anyone uh, enjoyed that conversation, then I'm grateful. And I hope people will find me on LinkedIn and, and stay in touch. That's what I was going to say. If people wanted to reach out and get in touch with you, is LinkedIn the best way? What are other ways to get in touch with you? Oh, my business website is called futurefocuscoaching.org. And also LinkedIn is fine. And we also have a company page on LinkedIn. Um, so you know, feel free to get in touch and send a message at any time. I love hearing from people and I always respond to messages. Um, so yeah, 
please do get in touch. Excellent. Thanks, Laura. Any final wisdom you want to share with folks before we wrap today? Oh, no, I think I've shared plenty. Thank you very much. You're very generous. <laughs> I could keep going if you want me to, but I think that's plenty. Oh, Laura, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of The Conversation. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Women in Agile podcast. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and scrum.org. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. And as always, you can go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations.